Welcome to the Throwing Shade Podcast, where in a black and white world, we'll discuss the nuances in customer experience, business, politics, and the news. I'm your host, Jimmy Hosang. Let's throw shade. Welcome back for the next episode of Throwing Shade, um, first one of June. Uh, welcome everybody who's come back for the show. Great to have you along again. Um, for this week's episode, we wanted to get a little bit um, under the hood of the early days of TMAX. We've kind of we've we've covered quite a lot of the story um, about the origins, but um, we've we've talked about you know how we got the um, the first clients through the door and things like that. But Jimmy, like. What were the early successes that the business had that was maybe like influential for, for where the business went? So, yeah, it was, it's a funny one. So we, we, ha- we, had, uh, we had an idea about what we wanted to do. But um, I think broadly speaking, we're kind of jacks of all trades, masters of none kind of thing. Um, and we did like a broad range of analytical analytical work. So, um the first the first project that we had was around customer journey mapping and trying to understand trying to understand like how customers had, had moved from different different touch points and that that was really interesting because a lot of companies um they think that they can't do this so their their mindset is to do customer journey analysis or to do upsell and cross-sell or to do you know machine learning for for um machine learning algorithms to generate increased customer value they always assign it to a technology rather than a mindset and so the initial kind of work that we did for it was for a life insurance company it was they, they effectively said we want to know like where are all where all of our demand goes and where are all the 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 pain points and things, but you know, we we don't have a CRM or we've got like a really old CRM. It just doesn't do this. So, um, so yeah, we uh, we basically uh, I kind of went in and had a look and worked with their internal team there. Sean was working on the program as well, and I kind of had a look around and I said, "Oh, look, like this is the key. Like this is how you join these two disparate data sets together, and this is how you join this one together." And then we started to map like where all the pain points were, and look. If you work in a life insurer, like you know where the pain point is. It's when things get re- uh, referred to underwriting. But then what happened was because um, you get more and more complex queries, um, the underwriting team grows and grows and grows, and it becomes more fundamental. You then have you then have challenges with the communications in and out of the underwriting team to kind of like a GP. So to bring that to life a little bit, so I go for life insurance. Um, I don't, I don't pass the just the initial success criteria, and I get re- referred to underwriting. Underwriting asks me for a load of questions about you know other parts of my lifestyle, but then they'll ask for a GP and maybe a GP report. Then all of a sudden, you've flipped the the journey. So now you're in a back office conversation between underwriting and, and the GP and the GP's got a certain way that they want to do things that's out of process 
and the underwriting team is kind of chasing and, and doing GP chases and stuff like that. But me as a customer, I'm kind of just sort of sat there going, well, what's taking so long? Well, there's a whole heap of other stuff that's kind of going on. So we did some really interesting work around, you know, joining all joining all of those pieces together. First of all, trying to, once we've done the initial analysis, how could we get more people through the happy path journey? Like, and, you know, I think underwriting costs, you know, millions and millions and millions of pounds a year for a large underwriter. How can you then deflect some of the things away from underwriting? Because we know that once a, um, a, uh, a contact goes to underwriting, it then gets caught in this bloody spin of like activity and stuff, which is which isn't which isn't great. And I, I suppose there, there was there was that one just came came off the bat, and then the second the second project that we were working on was around next best action. So we um, we, we initially went in to um, uh, assess whether or not a um, whether or not a, a program for next best action had been successful, um, and I went and had a look under the bonnet. I think we spoke about it in a podcast like a few weeks ago, so I won't go over it. But we we, we highlighted that there was two or three areas that were were wrong within the process. The really really important stuff, and I'll just do a like a spoiler alert. Like you can build the best predictive model in the world, but if you don't optimize it then it's not it's not worth anything it's not worth shit so the probability that you're going to buy something has got to be um joined with the value of you buying it and the cost to serve of that as well things like that so this was some of the stuff but also then a very very important thing in contact centers is adherence so we and adherence to the tools and adherence to the, the prompts that are coming up and nobody had really concentrated on well, we're sending all of these prompts out. Is anybody bloody using it? So because we come from a contact centre environment, that was the main thing that we looked at was people say, you know, you can be saying sell breakdown cover, but if Jimmy Hosang doesn't want to sell breakdown cover, like, like it's, it's, what's the point of it? So so we did, did a full project. And, and, and actually, it's very, very similar, very similar to, to the, the customer journey work. So everybody thinks that you need you needed to buy Salesforce or Zendesk or you know buy an, uh, a CRM in order to do this work. But actually, um, we built a single customer view um, of the uh, single customer view in three weeks, and then we built all the predictive models and did all of the testing and validation and things like that in a week or two. And then we, with the help of the um, the internal team, like they they had like a, a little kind of a little access front end that like integrated to the platform, and then we 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 made some changes about how it would show the information and show the data and stuff, and then we rolled it out, um, and um, that tool, which was kind of the initial prototypes of our next best action uh, tool playbook, that that tool started to generate significant amounts of money. And we tweaked it a bit. You've got to tweak, you've got to do some tweaking. But if you think about, we got that built and deployed within six weeks. And then from week six weeks to, to, to 12, we just cranked up the adherence measures, like who wasn't using it, who clicked on it, but then closed it, all this type of stuff. Who, 
who hovered over this this icon but then didn't use it, all that type of stuff. How many people are saying do, do not offer? We just really cranked up the adherence metrics. And I think by the time by the time the year closed out, it was generating around 750 grand additional margin per year. Um, just on just on upsell, upsell and cross sell. So it's so really, really interesting. But what what I took from um, from that and and the way in which we got after those two deployments was it wasn't about it wasn't about the technology. Um, it was about mindset and why we worked and the people who tried to do it before for, before us hadn't worked is because we did it we, we because of speed so we did it really really fast really fast so getting something live within six weeks which somebody thought you needed a full crm deployment very quick customer journey mapping across multiple different journeys in and out of uh, underwriting and things like that in three weeks done very very quick and it started to make us think well actually there's probably a usp in here because everybody wants to charge you by the day and they want to stack up the amount of consultants that are coming in and they want it to last as long as possible whereas actually there's probably an environment where we um we can exist which is around a faster better more affordable model um and you know our our kind of ethos was fail fast. It was every single project has an oh shit moment. Every you know, and that's everyone. Like there's hardly ever that you roll that something something gets rolled out and it's like oh oh it works. It happened to my Wi-Fi the other day actually. I bought a new Wi-Fi router and it just worked, and I was fucking amazed. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, it can't just work. I spent probably about 18 months of my life trying to get the last one to work, but it always breaks. So going into a project and going, this will, we'll roll this out. And initially this will be shit, but then gradually over time, it will get better and will improve and we'll understand some learnings and then you'll get to value. That's kind of what we, um, that's kind of what we built our, our reputation on. I think there's something else in there as well around um, the adherence side of things. And anybody who's been in a leadership position knows that the hardest part of your life is getting your people to do what you want them to do without hitting them with a stick. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of not using sticks to hit people with. I know, I know, Jimmy, you're quite partial to a stick now and again. But, um, I'm also. I'm also. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something in that, in terms of that that early success that you had in terms of measuring the adherence and trying to accommodate the adherence. I think that probably is another part of you know the, the development of the business as we went along, in terms of how can you make that side of things a lot easier and, and, and the route we went in terms of developing behavioral science and behavioral design capabilities to, to influence that adherence within the, the agent population as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think, I think first of all, it's like, first of all, all you have is stick. So then, so just use the stick. I think over time, what we've, what we've, we've been trying to do since then is um we've we've been trying to since then 
first of all, look at failure demand and, and, and things, and then how can you coach out failure demand? And then how can you improve customer experience and conversations? And to do those just on their own without without behavioral science or nudging or, or even speech analytics, you have to take a relatively brutal approach. It has to, and I don't, I, I don't give a, I don't care what anybody says. You've heard me arguing with like CX leaders and EX leaders and HR people, and they've gone, oh, well, you can't do this. You're just a tech person. That's bullshit, man. Right? I'm not a tech person. I've worked on the phones with sales I've worked on the phones um, and service. I've worked in collections and stuff as well. Like people don't want to do the things that you want them to do. Like so, you have to you have to force it to begin with. However, as as the toolkit has developed over time, and we've got we've got more nuance in terms of the front end capabilities and the the capturing of data, and then more nuance within like speech analytics and and predictive modeling and things like that around how people are interacting with it. Of course, then you can then start nudging people. But I, I'm a firm believer, like, when we when we did, when we've done some of these tools, so all that the, all the, the next best action tool does is say, sell this product or say this thing. All that the coaching product does is say, coach this person on this particular thing, unless you drive engagement through whatever means necessary, like to get the results, you never get the results. And so, so much of what I believe in is first of all, getting to the, this is how much things are costing you because you're not doing things correctly, doing that as quickly as possible. So everybody knows like the size of the prize and then like, executing on that in terms of technology but then culturally within the contact center like pushing people to do the things that you want them to do and it can be hard like the j curve is was pretty steep before but with covid and home working and things like that it's got even steeper but it was so it's so important and and actually it's the reason why if you've got operational buy-in to the things that you're doing and that flows through to everybody what I've learned. And, you know, having your ops director, I've been very, very fortunate to have fantastic support from, like, most of the ops, that ops people that I've, I've spoken to. I think all of them look at me to begin with and go, what the hell, like, who's this person coming to make my life harder again? But when, when I've sat in front of people and gone, look, I'm going to be on the floor... I'd be on the floor with all of the agents. I'd be changing the models and stuff as we were going. And people would be coming up to me and be going, like, what are you doing? And I'd be answering questions. And once they knew that I knew, I knew about uh, contact centers and I knew, you know, how where the value was being left out and where, like, and the difficulties associated with it. Once I got that buy-in, like, those guys at the top, like, really, like, drove that culture. And it was, but I don't think, I don't disregard the stick. 50% of the value of our tools is from the operational delivery of that through a senior manager going, use this tool, use this tool, or we're going to be having a conversation. 
And so I'm a big fan of the stick. And I, I think that that's really helped us versus a lot of other companies. There's so many data science companies who whose models don't work. Why did ours work? Well, it was because of all of the great work that the operational guys and the change guys and the QA guys like, gave to us and the wrapper that they put around it. I think it's about that level of influence as well. You're right. Like it's got to be everything all together, not one or the other or bits in between. It's got to be, we will manage your performance if you don't use it, but we've also done everything we can to make it usable, friendly, add value to your day, work the way that makes sense to you. And we've done it in a way that encourages like the, the continued use and regular use of the of the platform as well. And I think when you put them both together, like you say, combined with that really healthy relationship with the senior leadership team to encourage the, the buy-in and the adoption of it, then it's it's really driven that success through the roof. But you, you, you can't really have if you have too much stick, you ruin it. If you have too much without the stick, then everybody just gets fault and it's their own choice. And ultimately like if that was the case and we didn't need things, you didn't need to have a stick, then, then why would the FCA hand out fines? Right? Like yeah. people yeah. need fines because they, were, they will not do what they're told to do until the very last at some point. Yeah, but, but, but this is the thing, mate. Like, if you don't have the stick, right, we're in the 21st century, we've got chatbots and AI coming out of our asses, right? If you don't, if you don't deliver the best value conversation, then you're just getting going to get automated. Yeah. So I'm just so just I'm just so passionate about people understanding that if you're if you're just going to click a button, if you're just going to listen to someone and click a button and not provide an exper- experiential like part um, exper- experimental conversation, if you're just going to what can I help you with that? Well, that can be automated. <laughs> so so like. People just need to have a bit more foresight and go, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a really, really great customer service. I'm gonna upsell. I'm gonna show my value, and I just don't, I just don't see that enough. And and I think it's, it's actually companies, companies because everyone's got themselves into a button tapping kind of uh, situation. Then you know, change directors or transformation directors start going. Right. Well, I can take this amount of amount of demand out of the contact center. The, when we do, we do a lot of stuff. You know, early doors was about categorizing demand, like the customer journey things. But my recommendation when I was talking about customer journey um, with those initial with those initial um, companies, it wasn't the, my first one. wasn't Oh, this is all of the demand you could take out. What I discovered was to do was to, to do an upsell. You had to transfer to another team, so you had to. So the call came in. You said, "Oh, can I? Do, do you want to extend your policy with us?" Or yes, you do. Okay, I'll transfer you to another team. Well, you transferred to the other team. The other t- person tried to then sell them it at a different premium or whatever, and they said no. So my so that's two contacts on what should be a value proposition and a value play, but it just looks like pure demand. And what what the first thing that I said was, well, can I can I get the service agent to sell you the policy and ups and upsell it? So you remove the contact and you get the value as well. So that's what I was doing, and that's where the we're leaving so much money on the table in contact centers just in general. 
because we're, nobody's thinking about the value, um, the value play. Everyone's thinking about it as a cost play. So thinking back then, what were the what were the most valuable lessons that you learned from those early successes? How did that kind of shape the business as it went forward? So I think I think the first the first thing was around getting operational buy-in. So um, understanding which which of the people in a business um, um, not necessarily writes the checks, but can have the influence that you need to have on on the program that you're that you're running. So especially when you're a small company, like you need a big hitter who can who could kind of have your back because it's very easy, especially in the stuff that we're doing for for it to for engagement to drop off. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is working quickly. So work very, very quickly to get to an, an outcome as quickly as possible. The last thing that you need is for three months to go go by and you've not delivered anything. And 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 look, as we've scaled as a company, and look, I could, I could sound a little bit hypocritical and stuff now, but as we've scaled as a company and we do bigger projects and it becomes more complicated and there's all sorts of different stuff happening, like we've probably slowed down a little bit. But the focus now of, um, that I've spoken to everybody about is around speeding things back up and getting to getting back to the point, um, getting back to those like six week delivery delivery cycles. Because speed, it's it, it solves a multi it hides a multitude of sins. Like if you could deliver, you know, thirty percent of the value, but you've done it in four weeks, like that's that's gold dust. Because a lot of people can't do that. So I think I think speed is really really important, and also failing and failing quickly is important as well. I think the the other the other thing that I would say is, um, and I've been I've been terrible at this, but I would get the CTO of the client on side. So my challenge was always having to having to pitch to CTOs, all of which are, were a bit like me, like absolute know-it-alls who think they can build everything and they can do it like in no time at all. So what I used to do is I used to try and circumnavigate the CTO. But even if I got the project in on a proof of concept basis, I'd have then like massively pissed off the CTO or the IT director or whatever. And it's just not a good long-term strategy. It's all right to do it short-term because you want to try and get your stuff in the door. But long-term, like, it's not a good strategy. And, you know, right now, I'm trying to have, like, several um, s- several nice conversations with heads of procurement and things like that about the way in which we've gone into companies, simply because we, we just don't like to mess about. We like to get in, but we you've got to appreciate that these these uh, procedures and things in place, it's so, especially with uh, some of these huge companies, multinationals, where you can't just like kind of go in through the back door. So I've um, I've, I've kind of learned, learned that lesson. And then I think finally, the real big one for us was um, we failed the due diligence right back in the day, just in terms of like our policies and procedures. This is three three or so years ago. It was our first, first one really that we had to go through. And it just showed like how far we were behind and how, 
kind of provincial we were in our thinking around around security and around <laughs> around security and not just not just like database security which we thought we had part but just like desk policy like what's your desk policy when everybody works from home like and the, the they had an auditor who they wanted to bring around to my house to look at how secure my house was and stuff like that and you know how do you demonstrate that you went a day to procedures and processes and and policy like all of that stuff when you've got this mindset that we had which is let's just fucking do it like all of that stuff is fine when you're just doing a bit of consulting, but then all of a sudden when you're talking about customer data and you know PII data and, and employee information and all this type of stuff, we just hadn't we hadn't like thought enough or properly about it. Now I, I think a lot of companies kind of circumnavigate that, they like deploy into AWS and it's all like AWS policies or, or G, uh, Google Cloud. But I think understanding that level of rigor has put us in like incredible stead like the guys you know the guys george and moose and people like that who've got on top of it like i've done an, an exceptional job and yeah i think i think understanding understanding the process through which you need to onboard to give everybody a layer of comfort like i couldn't i couldn't stress enough how important that is some interesting surprising insights there jimmy not not um, what i'm sure a lot of the audience were expecting to hear but uh thank you very much for your candor and um honesty and uh i think we're going to draw it there for this week and um, we'll be back next week with it with a fresh episode and uh, watch this space thanks very much everyone have a great week that's it for the episode special thanks to banksy for co-hosting make sure to follow the podcast on spotify and hit the notification bell to be alerted every time an episode drops you can follow me on linkedin by searching for jimmy hosang or on twitter at jimmy hosang tune in next week for more insights and debate on throwing shade